All right, everyone, it is wonderful to see you, and this part of our worship service will continue with the reading of God's Word, which will be our sermon text for this morning. So if you have a Bible or your Bible app, please open up at this time to the book of Acts, chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 40. The book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Again, we're going all the way through the book of Acts. We're calling this series Authentic Church. We're wanting to make sure that as we attempt to move forward in our day, in our age, in our context, with all the unique challenges that we have as people living in modern America, that we are nevertheless being faithful to God's intention for what the church is and what it is meant to be. And as we all know, I think at various times in our lives as individuals, we can drift. We may believe in Jesus, we may be saved, but we can drift to the left and to the right. And churches can do the same thing. Denominations can do the same thing. And so we want to make sure that we're always coming back to the scriptures. As a matter of fact, you probably have heard this term canon. People will refer to the canon of scripture. Well, that word canon is a Greek word, and it refers to a ruler or a standard of measure. And so how do we know whether we're crooked or whether we're straight? Unless you have a standard of measure, something by which to say, okay, I'm, I'm in the right, we're in the right, or hey, we're a little off, we're a little off over here, and that's what the Word of God is. And so we want to make sure that as we're moving forward, we want to be faithful and fruitful in our ministry for the Lord. There are so many things about our lives today as Christians that are unique to us. You, you think about where we live and the, the blessings and the advantages that we have living in the modern world. We think about uh, internet technology and the ability to do online ministry and Zoom and all these kinds of things and get into cars and drive long distances and relatively short amounts of times and airplane travel and globalization and all this kind of stuff. And yet, deep down underneath, the condition of man has never changed. Man's most basic and fundamental need is a need for God. Amen? Amen? We need God. We have thirsty souls. Everyone does. Even people who say, I'm not spiritual. I'm not religious. I don't even believe there is such a thing as God. And yet even that man or that woman is thirsty for God and for a relationship with God. As the great church father Augustine once said, our hearts were made for thee. And they will always be restless until they come to rest in thee. Our hearts were made for God. But the plight of man is that we seek to fill that need for God with things that are not God. And so this morning, I pray that not only would we be filled with God, the joy and the knowledge of our Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer, but I pray the Lord would so empower us by His Holy Spirit that we would invite the world to know the same God who has filled us with His joy. And so with that said, our message this morning is going to be entitled, So the World May Hear. So the World May Hear. Let's read God's Word. We'll pray and get into our study this morning. This is the Word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, 
a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way, rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me now. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for giving us your word. We thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The word is food necessary for our souls. We just pray now, Lord, that you would create in us a hunger for your word. We pray that you would form minds prepared to receive what you would speak to us this morning. We pray, Lord, that you as the great potter and we as the clay would be formed into those men and women you desire us to be. Not as the world desires. Not even as we desire. But as you desire for us, Lord. Form us and fashion us into vessels prepared for your use. Lord, we pray you would gather us together as a people, as a body. With diverse backgrounds and experiences and life stories, Lord. Different gifts and talents. Strengths as well as weaknesses, Lord. We pray you would bring us together. For we believe it is by your sovereign hand that we are here this morning with breath in our lungs. Lord, we, we know that time is growing short for each one of us. Time is growing short, I believe, in this land, in this nation. And we pray that you would use us as people who will get the word of the gospel. The word that all men and women, all people, all places, all times need more than anything. Show us how we can partner with you that the whole world may hear. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, calling this morning's message, So the World May Hear. And not only do I think that title sums up kind of what's happening in chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, but I also think it helps guide us along as to what's been happening in the book of Acts. So if you'll remember, before Jesus' ascension, he said, You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we see that there's actually geocentric circles if you look at those places that Jesus named. Jerusalem was the epicenter of what God was doing through Jesus the Messiah. And then you see Judea is just outside of Jerusalem. Then Samaria just outside of it. And then of course the ends of the earth is limitless all over the planet so that all will hear. We saw how, though, the disciples immediately began to respond to the gospel. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke is sometimes referred to as the evangelist of the Holy Spirit. And as long as we understand that doesn't mean Matthew, Mark, and John weren't evangelists of the Holy Spirit, I think we can understand what is meant by that title, and that is that Luke especially focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who believe. And of course, Luke is the author of this two-part work that we refer to as Luke-Acts. So he wrote both the Gospel of Luke, which is part one of his account, and Acts, which is part two. Luke 1 is the beginning of the things Jesus did, and Acts is the continuing for Luke of the things Jesus was doing, but now through the Spirit in the life of those who believe. And so really, there's this seamless flow for Luke between Jesus himself and us, the church, that, that's an incredible concept. Luke didn't think, oh, hey, here's the story of Jesus, and that's the end. And we all just kind of meet around a couple thousand years later and talk about it, hopefully get encouraged, get some pious religious affections, and then go try to be moral. No, for Luke, it is more than that. The story of Jesus never stopped. Rather, it transformed. The story progressed. It moved forward through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that is why the church is referred to as the body of Christ. Christ is ascended into heaven. We cannot see him with our physical eyes. But people can see the body of Christ, the church, the visible representation, though imperfect, certainly, but nevertheless, really, the physical representation of what Jesus is doing through his ministry, the kingdom of God. And so we saw how initially that was going forward in power through the Spirit in Jerusalem. The church was growing. In the beginning, it was all entirely Jewish. People forget that today because most Christians in the world are not Jewish. And so we can kind of read back on to the text and assume, oh, well, the church was always Gentile, it was always non-Jewish. Uh, actually, the opposite was the case. When the church first began, it was all Jewish. There were no Gentiles. But we saw rather quickly how the gospel started transcending various boundaries, social boundaries that were created by people. So whether it was men or women, Jew or Greek, slave or free, the gospel just begins transcending all of these boundaries. We saw that the gospel started going out to the Hellenists. If you remember, we said those are Jews, but they've been Hellenized. Their culture is different. And we have to recognize that culture is really a challenge for us to meet with the gospel. Because culture, for many people, it is effectively their identity. 
whatever my language is, whatever my background is, wherever I come from, that, that's primarily how I see myself. And I'm a member of this particular group. But what the gospel does, it doesn't necessarily erase culture. It'll affirm the aspects of any and every culture that are good. But it'll also come into any and every culture, including American culture, and it'll critique those things that about that culture that are not befitting a child of God. And so the gospel will go forward, and what it also does is it challenges people to see their core identity as not being bound up in all these temporal, earthly, cultural categories, but rather as spiritual creatures, born again through the gospel message. And so that's how the early church is needing to think of itself. Yes, some are Jewish, some are Hellenist, some are Gentile, some are male, some are female, some are slave, some are free. What the gospel is saying, first and foremost, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. First and foremost, anyone who is in Christ is a child of God and an heir of the kingdom of God. And that's the challenge for the church today is to recognize that we are that before we are anything else. Amen? Amen. I am that before I'm anything else. And again, it doesn't mean all the other layers of identity are necessarily wrong. They could be. Because of the fall, some of our layers of identity are actually sinful themselves. Again, the Bible would even say when we were not believers. And again, for all the Christians here today, there was a time when we weren't. You're not born, born again, even if you always had the framework of faith around you. You were raised in a church. You were raised with the knowledge of the gospel. You were raised with the Bible from a very early But that, you can't live on borrowed faith. Faith has to become your own. You have to decide, I am going to follow Jesus at some point in your life. It cannot just be somebody else making that decision for you. And so we're going to see as we walk with Jesus, as we listen to the scriptures, we're going to find those elements of our identity that do not concord with the gospel. They may actually be sinful themselves. And even those things about us that are not sinful, they must become secondary. Being a member of this group or that group doesn't mean it doesn't matter, doesn't mean it's necessarily bad, but it can't be first and foremost anymore. I have to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, more than I am anything else. And that is the challenge of the gospel. The problem is for many people, and again, you know, I don't like being the stinker, but unfortunately, many times in American culture, we have what's called cultural Christianity. And what cultural Christianity is, it presents the outward morality and values of Christianity without offering rebirth. And there's a difference. And if you want to know, well, how is that possible or what would that look like, you can look at the Pharisees in the Gospels. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were people who dressed in religious garbs, even, by the way, the right religion. They weren't Hindus, they weren't Muslims, they were Jewish, of the true faith. And they had the scriptures, and guess what else? They studied meticulously. Jesus never faulted the Pharisees for not studying the Bible. But they absolutely missed what the Bible was about. And they were not born again, by and large. That was the problem. And the problem in America today is that even when Christianity is preached, and more and more it's simply not. But even when it is, oftentimes there's never the challenge of the gospel at the level of the heart. 
We simply say, oh, you're all really good people, and you just, you know, we want to help you have a little bit more of a comfortable life, how to make a little bit more money, how to, you know, kind of keep your marriage so, you know, your spouse doesn't divorce you, and you don't want your kids going hog wild and doing bad stuff. So here, here's some little moral tools, and you can put on these clothes of religious garb, and, and that'll just kind of, that'll be Christianity for you. That's exactly the problem that Jesus was encountering in the Gospels. He's saying it is not enough for you to be religious. It's not enough for you to go to church. It's not enough for you to know the Bible even. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You must be born again. And the whole idea of rebirth doesn't make sense unless you understand the doctrine of original sin. The idea that when we're born into this world, we're not born fine. The Bible says we didn't come into a neutral world. This is a hostile world, hostile to the things of God, evil and wicked in its intent. The scripture says this over and over and over again. And I find that popular culture in America today, and sadly many Christians, many Christians believe a heresy that human beings are basically good. For church history fans, you probably know the technical term for this. It's called Pelagianism. It's the belief that Adam's sin did not affect anyone else. That it's just Adam was a bad example, but we're all good. Scripture says no. Because of Adam's sin, not only was the cosmos cursed, as you can clearly see, but human beings inherited that curse. All human beings after Adam were born outside of Eden. All those who came after Adam were born outside the glorious presence of God. They did not get what Adam and Eve had in the beginning. And so we have to recognize that if man is not basically good, and sure, people can still do good things and culture can prevent us from doing really bad things. It's why culture matters. It still matters through culture, through politics, through law, we can take certain evils kind of off the table of immediate opportunity. That doesn't make anybody good. It just means you've taken certain things kind of off the table. But the fact that anyone would choose evil, regardless of whether it's on the table or off the table, is proof man is fundamentally not good. And so the gospel comes and says, you must be born again. You are so bad in your heart towards God. And you're so self-righteous, even as you hear this message, you're thinking... This is not about me. This has to be for somebody else because I'm good. I'm a good person. I, I, I work hard. I have a good job. I built a nice little life for myself. I have a nice little family. I pay my taxes and, and I do good things for my neighbors. I'm a good person. I, and again, the very fact that you're offended that God's standard of holiness might be higher than yours is actually proof of your own sin. Because somebody who actually understands who God is and the holiness of God says to themselves, Woe! Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Woe to me, for I am a sinner. That's actually what you see all throughout the Bible when somebody encounters the glorious presence of God. They know that they do not deserve to be there. And unless God cleanses them, that is not a good place to be. And so this message of the gospel, the need to be born again, is spreading and it's transcending all these cultural boundaries and it's challenging people's core identity. Interestingly, even followers of Jesus sometimes are resistant to this movement of the gospel. And this isn't 
just outside the Bible in American culture. This happened even here. We saw just a few weeks ago, how did the gospel first go outside of Jerusalem? It seemed to be just contained there. Well, what happened? Did, did they all sit around and say, hey, you know what? Jesus said this gospel has to not stay in Jerusalem, but go to Judea and Samaria. What happened? They didn't sit around. They didn't have a planning meeting. What happened? God in his providence allowed them to become very, very uncomfortable. More than that, he allowed them to be persecuted. So something outside of their control compelled them to begin running, just fleeing Jerusalem. But the result of that was as they were fleeing, Luke records, they went everywhere preaching the gospel. They went everywhere. So God is accomplishing his own mission even when we're reluctant to participate. He's just doing it anyway. It's better that we see what he's doing and partner, but guess what? God has a way of getting us to go where he wants us to go, even if we don't want to follow. Do we want to do it the hard way or the easy way? Well, now in this section, we're going to see it is going beyond Judea. It is going beyond Samaria. And here is the first indication that the gospel is going <laughs> to the ends of the earth. I want to make four points this morning. The first point is this. Follow the Holy Spirit. Number one, Follow the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 26 through 27a. It says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. Why do you think Philip did what he was told to do? Why did he do it? Was it because he rationalized that it was a very strategically savvy idea? Did Philip go, well, you know, we, we've done our demographic research and we, you know, people are kind of in this age range and this is how they vote and this is their age group and here's their ethnicity, right? Like all the stuff we do today. And again, not saying that's wrong. I'm just pointing you out. He did not do that whatsoever. In other words, this is not man's wisdom. This is not man's wisdom. I would totally understand if Philip said, why? That's all. The, the angel of the Lord did not say, here's the reason and here's what's going to be the result. doesn't say it. All the angel of the Lord says is get up, go to the south. Oh, by the way, it gets worse. So just get up and leave. By the way, a revival's happening. Already you could say, hey, Lord, I'm not sure if you know what you're doing here. You've gotten some good press. You know, the spirits going forward mightily. There was this, you know, sorcerer guy and he was a celebrity and everybody, they literally, they were like worshiping him saying he is the power of God. They were worshiping this sorcerer guy and then we came with the power of the gospel and even the sorcerer guy realized, no, that's not real power. Serving Satan looks like power to fallen people. But when you see the power of God, you recognize the power of Satan is nothing. And he saw the power of God moving forward, and they're rebuking this man, and God's doing great things. So the angel of the Lord's saying, hey, get up and leave. That just doesn't sound like a great idea. Isn't this what we work so hard for? To see a revival happen? And yet he's told to just leave. It gets worse, as I said, because he says, all right, but maybe, I know what you're doing, Lord. Things are going really great here, and you're going to send me to a place where there's even more. Wait a minute. You're sending me where? He says, go south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is 
desert, or other translations have it, this is a deserted area. Or to paraphrase it, this is the middle of nowhere. He sent him to Barstow. You know what I mean? It, it's like, just, yeah, you know, you got this great revival in Los Angeles, New York City. People are getting saved. By the way, I want you to go to Barstow. You know, like the middle of nowhere. It doesn't make any sense. But what we see here is that Philip is a man full of the Spirit. And what does that mean? There's a lot of things I think that can mean, biblically speaking. For many of us being full of the Spirit, we tend to think of the manifestation of, say, sign gifts, which I believe they, they are for today. I do think God still does those things. But for some reason, we neglect the moral aspect of being full of the Spirit. The moral aspect of being full of the Spirit is obeying and following the Holy Spirit wherever He leads. That we need to be sensitive to doing that. Philip did not ask, where am I going? He didn't ask, why am I going? He didn't ask, what's going to be the result? He just said, if the Holy Spirit is leading, I'm going. And I believe this is paradigmatic for followers of Jesus that we are to be people who follow the Holy Spirit. Now immediately I understand we can push back against that idea because if you're like me I've seen people in the name of following the Holy Spirit do stupid stuff. Has anyone seen people in the name of the Lord do stupid stuff? Oh I was following the Spirit. I've even seen people do bad things. Not just like stupid but maybe it wasn't immoral. You can do something dumb that's not immoral. But I've even seen people do things that were immoral in the name of the Holy Spirit. So we can immediately push back and say, well, wait a minute, how, how do we know? How do we know we're not being crazy? How do we know we're not being irresponsible? And again, there, there is an element of mystery, and I'd like to say adventure, mm -hmm. to following the leading of the Spirit. In other words, some of us, we want the Spirit to be entirely predictable. We want Him to be in a box. But the Holy Spirit cannot be contained in a box. Jesus said this in the same speech to Nicodemus. The Spirit goes, the wind goes, wherever it wishes. The Holy Spirit can go this way, that way. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So is he or she who is born of the Spirit. So we cannot perfectly do that. However, it is good and right to ask, well, wait a minute. Okay, if I want to follow the Holy Spirit in my daily life this week, being sensitive to the leading, to the rhythms, to the guiding, to the promptings, to the voice of the Holy Spirit, well, how do I know that at the very least, perhaps I, I can't always know if I'm going to be mistaken or not, but I'd like to make sure I'm not going against the Spirit by following this idea of prompting. And that is why I would like to refer to following the Holy Spirit as the specific application of God's Word to your life. Think of it that way, because the, the Bible is objective. I can know what it says. It's here. It's, it's written down. This is who God is. This is what he's doing. This is why he's doing it. This is his nature. This is his character. This is the history of what I know he has done in the lives of those who are following the Spirit like Phil. So I know it. I have a pattern, and it's solid. And I don't have to wake up each day and go, oh, gosh, is this the Word of God? I'm not sure. No, I know it's the Word of God every day. So that's your grounding, is the Word of God. But then what does following the Spirit mean? It means specifically applying the Word of God. So in other words, there's going to be an element of mystery, adventure, and even risk to following the Spirit. You're not always going to get it right. 
But notice this, there's not going to be any permission to do anything that is immoral. The Holy Spirit will never, ever, ever, ever lead you to do something that contradicts what God has already said in His Word. Amen? Amen. I mean, we need to be biblical charismatics. You know, you've got biblical people who don't want the gifts of the Spirit, don't believe the Spirit speaks to anybody today. You, you just have to reason and strategize and come up with plans and do all that. Then you've got the charismatic. Oh, we just follow the Holy Spirit. Oh, but uh, we're, we're so spiritual. We're above the Bible and the Word of God. We, we don't need to be, you know, corrected or led back in the way. But wrong. We want to be biblical charismatics, people that we are grounded in the Word. We're shaped by it. We're formed in it. That way we have a sense, a heightened sense of, hey, this sounds like the Lord. Or, hey, that doesn't sound like the Lord to me. Our sensitivity to the Spirit. We're tuning our ear, so to speak, to the kinds of things the Spirit would do. And I think you can see that here. One of the things we see in Scripture is that it is the will of God for us to share the good news, to share the gospel, to be willing to forsake all, to up and leave a good opportunity if it's there, to go wherever God's leading us to go. And it's confirmed by what follows. He's sharing the gospel with somebody else. He's sharing the gospel. So follow the Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord to speak to you. Continue to stay in the Word so you have that grounding. And you'll, you'll have a better sense of discernment to know whether it is God prompting you to do something or not. But be open. Be open to the idea that as we're looking for a building or we're looking for the, it's not just going to be stuff on paper. Well, hey, this looks good and I think this is the way it is. Lord, where do you want us to go? Sometimes you may say, this is desert and I want you to go there. I want you to go on a trip to Gaza. And you're like, okay, really? Am I, are we really going? I hope that we, not just as individuals, but a church, it's not about where we want to go. It's where God wants to take us. That's what's most important. We all have desires. Hey, Lord, I'd like to do this. I'd like to do that. But Lord, where do you want us to go? I want to want to go where you want us to go. And by the way, and if I don't want to, you know that, Lord, incline my heart to do your will change me. If I've got resistance, if I'm like, no, I think doing it your way, it's going to be hard. It's going to be, a, it's going to be uncomfortable, whatever it is. Lord, help me to desire to follow your Holy Spirit wherever he leads. So we see Philip doing this. And it's amazing, this man Philip, the, the obedience and the faith that he has to simply do what the Holy Spirit is leading to do. And again, let's say hypothetically, he wasn't, but let's say Philip was mistaken. What wrong did he do? He did not do anything sinful. He did not do anything immoral. The worst case thing is, all right, I got down here to Gaza. Nobody, nobody's here. All right, Lord, I think that was, that was you, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, it's kind of... The uh, worst thing that happens, he sticks around for an amount of time and he goes back. There's, there's no sin. He's not doing anything unbiblical or immoral. But as it turns out, it was the Holy Spirit. And there was no way he was going to encounter anything in this section if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. He didn't Google it. He didn't research it. It wasn't any humanly devised strategy. It was the Holy Spirit. And we're going to need to follow the Spirit as well. Point number two, go after the one. Point number two, go after the one. Verse 27b through 29. And behold... A man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. 
Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So notice that God had Philip lead a revival where he's ministering to many people, so quantitatively, he shouldn't have left. If quantity is the only thing that matters, reaching mass numbers of people, that's the only thing. It obviously matters, but is that all that matters? If quantity is all that matters, then Philip should not have left. It doesn't make sense for God to leave him away from quantity for anything else. And yet here we see that God cares about the one, doesn't he? The heart of God is not elitist and snobby like some Christians are. Where I'm only going to go where it's going to look great, there's going to be lots of people and my name will be in lights and everybody will be you know, seeing what I'm doing and all of that. God cares about the one. This is the heart of Jesus. He is the good shepherd. He is the one who's willing to leave the 99 to go after the one. But sadly, even many of us are not willing to leave the 99 to go after the one. We'd rather be surrounded by 99 and enjoy all that comes with that. And again, it's not a bad thing, but are we willing to do the best thing? Are we willing to do what God is calling us to do? Now, in this case, I would want to point out that there is a sense in which sometimes the one, the one person you may reach, maybe you're not a, a Greg Laurie or a Billy Graham or, or whoever it is, or a, a Luis Palau or whoever it is, you're, you're not that person. And so you think to yourself, well, I just don't reach a lot of people quantitatively. I, I don't, hey, I'm not like you, Pastor. I'm not like you, Mr. Evangel. I just, you know, like maybe I reach one guy a year or five years or, or something like that. But I just want to encourage you today, friends, go after the one. God's got his eyes on the one that each and every single individual matters to God. I would even say some individuals cannot be reached as a member of a group. They're going to have to be approached one-on-one. -on -one. That's just the way it goes. Some people will only be reached if they come together in a, in a massive stadium and there's all these people and all this stuff's going on and they're like, okay, I see what's going on, I'll come forward. Other people are like, that's weird. I'm not doing that. I, I don't want to go to a stadium with helicopters flying over and the pastor coming down on a rope. Like, I, I don't want to do all that. I, I just, you know, like, that's not my thing. I, I want, I just want real one-on-one -on -one stuff. You know, like, hey, go to coffee with me and talk to me like another human being. Don't try to sell me a product like somebody on a late-night television infomercial. Like, if you can't be real and one-on-one -on -one with me, I don't want to hear what you have to say. There's going to be individuals that that's where they are. Go after the one. Now, notice who this one just happened to be. You never know who that one on the airplane is going to be. By the way, anyone who flies, I'm telling you, for me, those are the best evangelistic opportunities ever. Like people, I don't care how accustomed we are to flying, you're at 30,000 feet in a flying tin can and we all know it. Deep down, we're like, man, I do this all the time for work and I could die in a second. And people are like, open, I'm leaving this place, I'm going to that place, I'm vulnerable, I'm flying around in this tin can, this is so unnatural. And they're open to the gospel. You never know that one person in the coffee shop, that one person on the train, wherever it might be, who that person could turn out to be. Notice who this is in God's providence, the leading of the Spirit, not according to man's reasoning. He was from Ethiopia. Let's start there. The gospel is going into Africa. Already at the very beginning, people today, critics of Christianity, think of Christianity as a white Western religion. 
And while it's true that white Westerners, by and large, have been transmitters of Christianity for quite some time, it is not true that that's how it started. And from the very beginning, the gospel was going into Africa. This is incredible. Um, this says Ethiopia at the time that probably corresponded to what is now the country of Sudan. Which, if you know anything about Sudan, it's actually largely not Christian anymore, sadly. It's largely Islamic. But there are many African countries which are Christian. And the gospel went forward there in the very beginning. Now notice, there's more happening. Not only now is the gospel going to go to Africa, but look who this guy is. It says he's a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury. This is the number two guy in the entire country, in the kingdom. The number two guy. And look at the providence of God. Philip didn't create this opportunity. This man is already somebody that is seeking God. Notice that. Most likely he had just left Jerusalem because he attended one of the great pilgrim feasts of Judaism or Israelite religion. He was worshiping the one true God, but he was doing so as an outsider. And he had money, and notice this. So it says he's under great authority, under Candace, which is not a name, it is a title. Candace is the name that corresponds to the Egyptian word Pharaoh. So it is a title given. This is the queen mother. And he is the one under her authority who's in charge of all of her money, all of her treasures, all of her possessions. This man, notice he's in a chariot. Back then, in this day and age, you would have had to be a millionaire to own a chariot and to have drivers driving you around. This is a wealthy man. More than that, where did this man get a scroll? Do you know how expensive it was to obtain scrolls in those days? It was outrageous. Only a rich person would have parchments, papyrus. Only they would have it. This man is a wealthy man. And think about that. The scriptures tell us. They give us a heads up. Not many mighty, not many wise, not many rich are called. It's true. When it comes to ministering to the powerful people, to the mighty people, to the wise, not many of them, percentage-wise, come to Christ. It's a sad thing. Those who have much of this world care least for the next. Don't ever forget that. Don't get sucked into the, the values of this culture that says the one who dies with the most toys wins. No, that is the man who lost his soul. What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his own soul? We can't get caught up in that. And yet, I also want to encourage you, notice by the grace of God, that God can even reach these up and outers, people who are rich and wealthy, have just as much in need of God as the poorest person on earth, and yet notice this man, with all that he has, recognizes it's not enough. He has a need for God, not religion. If he needed religion, he could have just adopted the native religion of his own kingdom, which was not Judaism. We know that. This man had a hunger for God. He made the long trip. Think about what Americans, where it's like, ah, i got to go another ten minutes, i got to go five minutes. I gotta... This man was willing to leave Sudan, Ethiopia, and go all the way up into Israel to worship God. A God that, as far as he knows, hey, I can worship him, but I'm kind of on the outside. I'm a eunuch, I'm not a Jew, and I don't even know if I'm fully accepted in the people of God, but I'm going to worship him nonetheless. Notice the commitment of this man. So he is a rich, powerful, wealthy man. And of all things, he is sitting in his chariot, and he is reading Isaiah the prophet. 
and notice what the Spirit once again says. So you normally wouldn't do this. It's like, you know, in traffic, you know, the Lord says, overtake this limousine. And you're like, uh... Uh, that's kind of weird, Lord. Like, you, first of all, people aren't supposed to be running in traffic. And then imagine you run, you, you know, saw some celebrity or whatever in a limo. The Lord says, "Go knock on his window of his limo." And you're like, oh, I don't know if I should be doing this. Like, this is weird. Bodyguards come out, shoot you. Who knows what's going on? That's kind of the situation. It's not the normal thing you would do. That's why it's important to follow the Holy Spirit. It's easier if we have a strategy. You know, just just go up to every single person. But we all know that, that doesn't work, right? And as a matter of fact, sometimes it's counterproductive. If you just go around and I'm handing out tracks to everybody at a restaurant, it, people are like, look, I'm trying to eat my food. Don't shove a track in, in, in my hand while I'm trying to eat a burger and, you know, all this stuff. And you're, you just handed me a track with, a, I don't know if you've seen this one, the fake wallet with, like, money coming out. And people go, oh, dang it, it's a track. You know, it's kind of a messed up tactic, I think, although maybe it works. I don't know. But this is the kind of thing where it may not be your normal M.O., it's not your normal strategy. Maybe you just go to work. I just try to show my love for the Lord through just how I live my life. That's normally what I do. I normally don't say anything about Jesus because I'm in a secular work environment. I know they don't want me to express my religious values and views here. And I understand that. To have a job, to some extent, I can't turn my job into a pulpit. But are you open to the Holy Spirit saying, overtake this chariot? Are you willing to say, yeah, Mike, normally when you're working here at the bank with your clients, you, you don't sit there and talk about Jesus every five seconds. But if I tell you, talk to this person. Tell this person about Jesus. Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to take that risk? Will I listen for the Lord who will take me out of my normal pattern? Doesn't mean my normal pattern is wrong per se. But am I open to this? And again, notice that Philip responds. He goes after the one. Point number three, teach what you're taught. Teach what you're taught. Look at verses 30 through 35. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, in those days, I don't know if you know this, but most people in the ancient world, they read aloud. They did not read silently to themselves. Again, there's some debate on when did this idea of reading silently to oneself develop. Uh, some scholars say it developed in the Middle Ages with the birth of scholasticism and more private reading. But most people, including Israelites, when they would read an ancient scroll, they would read aloud. There's even studies that suggest this is better for your memory. If you really want to remember something, don't just read it silently. Read it aloud to yourself, including the reading of Scripture for your devotions in the morning. But nevertheless, this practice is taking place. So, so imagine, here's this Ethiopian eunuch. He's in a chariot, this rich man. He has everything in the world, but he recognizes that's not enough. He needs God. And he bought a scroll. And he's reading it. He's reading this scroll. And Philip comes up and he says, Do you understand what you are reading? Now, some people think if you just have the Holy Spirit, you can just pick up a Bible and you're going to understand everything that's in there. Maybe some of you are new to Christianity, you're new to the Bible, and, and you, you feel like, gosh, is something wrong with me? I open up a Bible and I don't understand it. Actually, no, that's normal. I, I think sometimes, be, because again, because of cultural Christianity, a lot of people have been exposed to the Bible growing up, and they, they automatically have interpretations supplied to them through a, a tradition of some kind. So you just assume everyone knows that, but that's not how it is. He asks a legitimate question. Do you understand what you're reading? And notice what the answer is. How can I unless someone guides me? 
don't assume that when you tell people, hey, you really should read a Bible, or hey, here, I got a Gospel of John for you, and you just don't, how can they unless someone guides them? People need to be taught what the Scriptures mean. Do we want people to be biblically literate? Yes. What does biblically literate mean, though? Do you mean they just are familiar with what the Bible says? This man is literate. The Ethiopian eunuch doesn't need to be taught how to read. He's reading. He knows what the words say. He doesn't understand the ultimate significance. He doesn't understand how it relates to the great program of redemption. He doesn't understand how it relates to what God is doing in the world to save sinners for himself. He doesn't understand that part of it. So he needs someone to come alongside and teach them. And as I said, I think many times we forget that step. And some of us feel bad if we open the Bible and we don't understand. Maybe not just some of it, maybe almost all of it. Like, I get Jesus, I love him, I, I believe he's Lord. But other than that, I really don't know much. Don't feel bad. You simply haven't been taught at this point. So sit yourself under good Bible teaching. This is how you increase your competency to be able to understand what the Bible is teaching. Philip didn't respond, oh, well, you, you, you don't need to be taught. Rather, he comes alongside and he responds. The place that he happened to be reading was Isaiah 53. Again, notice that the providence of God over all this. Of all the places he happens to be reading, he's reading Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. The very thing that Jesus fulfilled in Jerusalem through his life, death, and resurrection. And so it says in verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip and I said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now again, not everyone is called to be a teacher by office in the church. But I would say everyone is called to teach someone something. Everyone. If you're a parent, you're teaching your kids. If you're a grandparent, you're teaching your, your grandchildren. You're, you're teaching people at your work. Teach them something. You don't have to know everything. I think that's one of the great hindrances to you teaching anyone what this means, what the Bible means. You think to yourself, well, I don't know everything. And because I don't know everything, I don't want to tell anything. Look, no one knows everything. I don't know everything. If I wanted to wait until I knew everything, I would never teach anybody anything. What we want to do is, yes, take that yoke upon us to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Yes, I want to do that. But I'm sufficient, not because of my perfection of learning, but the grace of God that is with me. And so all you need to do is teach what you're taught. Take what you learn in a, in a Sunday morning service or a women's Bible study or a men's Bible study or, or a devotional that you read that morning or a message you heard on the radio station, whatever it was. Take what you've learned, make sure it's biblical, and teach it to somebody else. Teach what you're taught. You don't have to know everything there is to know. But everything we do know is not just for us, it is for others. When we're learning, hopefully we don't come, Lord, I expect you to only speak about that which concerns me and nothing else. Hopefully we come to church, Lord, yes, I want you to speak to me. I need, I need a word from you. 
You know what I got going on. You know what's going on out there. I need a word from you. Yes, it is right to desire that. But more than that, we are missionaries. We are evangelists. Lord, not only meet me and provide what I need for this week, but give me more than enough. Multiply it like the five loaves of bread and two fish. Make it more than enough, not just to feed my belly so that others may be fed as well. Teach what you're taught. And lastly, number four, maintain a global perspective on our faith. Number four, maintain a global perspective on our faith. Verse 39. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he, that is the eunuch, went on his way rejoicing. So again, notice that the end result of this is that this man, this eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch, second in command of all of the kingdom of Ethiopia at this time, not only was believing in the God of Israel, but he had come to believe that the God of Israel had revealed himself and fulfilled his promises to Israel in the person of the suffering servant, which was Jesus Christ himself. He received it. He believed it. He was baptized in water. And then he returned home. And on his way, he's rejoicing. Notice that. And he's bringing the gospel to Africa. Now, it is so important for Christians to realize that while we act locally, we think globally. That's important. Again, the idea of, oh, we love all humans, but then you don't treat your neighbor you see every day with the love of the Lord. It's like, well, then you don't really love humans at all. I know that that's kind of like the, the religious hypocrite way, even in modern America. Oh, I just love all humans all times. All, but then they're jerks to everybody they meet right here in town. You know, it's like, no, it, it, is it good to say I love all human beings in all cultures and all countries? Yes, but it's hard to believe. It's really even hard to practice if you can't love the people who are right here, right in front of you right now. But again, while we're acting locally, we're loving the people in the body of Christ. This is a family. We want to love one another. Just bless one another. Be there for one another. Pray for one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. We want to do that. But we also want to be mindful that God is doing so much more than what is happening simply right here. And even as a small church, we are able to do this through partnerships with other ministries. You know, I remember years ago, it was on my heart to be able to support uh, Hearts for Africa and our friend Cheryl Cedillo and it, for those of you that remember, this was years ago, we were in such a bad financial position in a lease on a building we could not come anywhere close to affording a bill that we were not able to support any foreign missionaries. None. And I remember I felt so guilty and I felt so bad and I'm like, Lord, I, I want to not just like make our ends meet. I want to do more for other people. But we weren't there. And I'm like, I'm not God. I can't make something out of nothing. That's God's job. We didn't have it. The crazy thing is the Lord got us out of that situation. Here we are meeting outside. And the crazy thing is now we are able to support missionaries in Africa. We've been doing it on a monthly basis for years now. Every year, this little church, through our giving, which not only meets the things that we need to continue going, but we're able to provide the annual salaries for three people in a ministry in Africa through this little church. And so even when we meet together, and we're not always conscious of it, but when we're doing this, when we're loving the gospel, when we're loving the scriptures, when we're doing what God is calling us to do, not only are we going to focus 
on the people in front of us, but we're going to do good. We're going to get the gospel out to the world. We have another ministry in Africa that we support, and it's called Divine Business Appointments. And I know it's a value that I think resonates with a lot of us. It's the idea we recognize poverty is a huge issue. And Christians shouldn't just be, well, let me feed your soul, but I don't care if your stomach is empty. Jesus says, the Bible says, that's hypocrisy. But on the other hand, we also understand we don't just want to just give a hand out, we want to give a hand up. And so it's the idea of helping the poor get into business for themselves, to give them the opportunity through biblical principles to get out of poverty and also to know the Word of God. And so again, the opportunity for us as a church to support that. And if you want to see more about what we're doing, again, if you go to our imagechurchoc.com page, click ministries, scroll down to the bottom, those are the ministries we support. And you can learn more about them. But this idea of maintaining a global perspective is probably more important now than ever. Do you realize that most Christians in the world no longer live in the West? 66% of the world's Christians live in the global South. At the beginning of the 20th century, 80% of the world's Christians lived in Western Europe and North America. No longer the case. Christianity, whatever we try to do to, to change it, and we should, but the fact is Christianity by the numbers is dying off in the West. It is thriving in the global South. God is still working. And what difference does this make to your daily perspective? If all you do is turn on the news and see the bad crud, and there's plenty, that's going on in the Western world regarding us as Christians, if that's the only perspective that we have, then it's all, in a sense, bad. It's just negative. And I'm not saying ignore that. We've got to take it seriously. But look what God is doing outside the West. Look what he's doing in the global South. It is thriving. There's more Christians in the world today than ever before in human history. That's amazing. So what that does for my perspective is balance it. Yes, things are, are going bad here. They are. And, you know, and this is not my eternal home. I know it's not. But it is my earthly home. And I don't want my earthly home. To, to, to go to hell in a handbasket. I don't want that. I want to do what we can. But I understand, even if I don't stop that, God is doing great things in the world. we got to make sure that if people in America don't want the gospel, we give it to those who want it. And there are many, many people, millions, even billions, waiting for the gospel, waiting for people to give them what Philip gave this Ethiopian. And I pray that we as a Christian community would not just be individuals, but we would act and think as a church so that the world may hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and we praise You that You have had grace and compassion on us. Lord, we do not deserve anything that You've given us. The fact that we are alive, the fact that we are here, the fact we have the ability to hear, the fact that Your Word is going forth, the fact that Your Spirit is bearing witness to the truth of the Gospel of Your Son, Jesus Christ, is all of grace. We've earned nothing. Lord, I pray that You would create a sense of gratitude in our hearts before we leave this place. Help us to understand that whatever else may be wrong in the world, may be wrong in our personal lives, we have been more blessed than we could ever deserve. 
we have been given more than we need to live a life of godliness. So Lord, help us to surrender ourselves to you yet again. To say, here I am, Lord. Take my life. Use it for your glory. Send me. We pray that we would not only love one another as you have loved us, we would be committed to this body to make sure that the body of Christ is growing together, loving one another, growing in the faith, getting through the ups and downs of life, celebrating those joyous moments, lifting each other up when we fall into a pit. Lord, we pray we would be faithful. But we also pray, Lord, we'd see beyond ourselves to the great work you're doing in the world and that we would be faithful and responsible to follow the Holy Spirit in however he leads us to give, to serve, to love, to pray. We commit this closing time of worship to you and we ask that you would take this word this seed of the gospel and you would water it now in our hearts so that it springs up into life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.